Hello, and welcome to the Heavenbound Podcast. My name is Jason Harden. I'm here with Roger Schaus, and we are opening the Bible in search of fuel for your spiritual journey. This is where we talk about life, the way it was meant to be, and what it means to be a disciple of Jesus in the 21st century. We so appreciate you joining us on the journey today. Roger, we have been working our way through the life of Jesus in songs. This is actually part three of a five-part series, and so the first Friday in December, we looked at his birth, and we used that classic hymn, Hark the Herald Angels Sing. Last Friday, We saw thee not, got us into some of the intriguing details of Jesus's life. Today, we have so many hymns that focus in on his death. It was kind of hard to narrow it down to just one, but we chose 10,000 angels. Yeah, and the death of Jesus is really the central part of the Bible. Uh, Jesus is not just a wise teacher. He's not just a good example. He is the Son of God that came to die for our sins, and that is really kind of brought out in this hymn. Uh, As we have in our other podcasts, at the end of this, we're going to play this hymn, and we're going to encourage you to sing along with it. It's just a great encouragement for us. That thought comes from Matthew 26 and verse 53, where Jesus says, Or do you not think I cannot appeal to my Father, and he will at once put at my disposal more than 12 legions of angels? The songwriter of 10,000 Angels is Ray Overholt. And he's kind of an interesting story, interesting character. He died not too long ago, in this year 2008. He's from Michigan, and he was a country western singer. He grew up in a musical family, and he had a regular TV show uh, that was showcasing a lot of the country singers uh, that were well-known, and he was kind of the host of that show. He was playing one night uh, in Michigan in a bar. He he was, as he described himself, a drunk and a profane man. But that thought, 10,000 angels, came to him. And he scribbled down those words, and he started thinking about that. And before the night was over, he turned in his resignation. He was done. And before he could finish the hymn, he said, I got to know about the man. He didn't know about Jesus. So he started going through this Bible and reading about Jesus Christ. And this passage of Matthew 26, 53 is one he stumbled upon. And that just magnified this idea that Jesus could have called 10,000 angels. From that was kind of a turning point of his life. He spent the rest of his life singing uh, uh, hymns and going around trying to lead people to Jesus. And it's kind of a remarkable story about how the death of Jesus brought about change in this person's life. Yeah, it is fascinating how when you learn a little bit of the backstory, whether it is from the 15 or 1600s all the way just to recent decades, how it just deepens your appreciation, especially when the words are are so heartfelt. So let's read these four verses. And then, Roger, I'm just going to ask you what stands out to you. The, the first verse begins, They bound the hands of Jesus in the garden where he prayed. They led him through the streets in shame. They spat upon the Savior, so pure and free from sin. They said, Crucify him. He's to blame. 
Upon his precious head they placed a crown of thorns. They laughed and said, Behold the king. They struck him and they cursed him and mocked his holy name. All alone he suffered everything. When they nailed him to the cross, his mother stood nearby. He said, Woman, behold thy son. He cried, I thirst for water, but they gave him none to drink. Then the sinful work of man was done. To the howling mob he yielded. He did not for mercy cry. The cross of shame he took alone. And when he cried, it's finished. He gave himself to die. Salvation's wondrous plan was done. He could have called 10,000 angels to destroy the world and set him free. He could have called 10,000 angels, but he died alone for you and me. Clearly, there are several direct quotations of Jesus from the cross. What a, a powerful last line that takes this ancient scene and, and brings it right to our doorstep. Roger, what stands out to you about this hymn? Well, you know, he, he just walks through the steps of what leads right up to the crucifixion. I mean, he talks about how uh, they bound him. They talked about the audience that was there. They talked about how his condition was, how he's thirsty. But but to me, one of the most significant statements here is in this last uh, chorus where he says he gave himself to die. Uh, this very idea he could have called, but he didn't. At his disposal were legions of angels. Say the word and help us on the way. But he didn't do that. And oftentimes when we get into the discussion about the death of Jesus, you know, the question comes up, who actually killed Jesus? Was it the Jews? Was it the Romans? And the answer is really neither one of them. Uh, they might have been the instruments to get it done, but Jesus gave his life. He was a willing sacrifice. No one took his life. He gave it up. And that really is the theme found throughout the Gospel of John. Uh, let me just run through some of these with you. In John chapter 10, that great chapter that talks about he is the good shepherd. In John chapter 10 and verse 11, he says, I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. Just a few verses later in verse 15, even as the father knows me and I know the father and I lay down my life for the sheep. Again, we notice this emphasis. I lay it down. No one takes it. I lay it down. Again, in verse 17, for this reason, the father loves me because I lay down my life so that I may take it up again. The very next verse, verse 18, no one has taken it away from me, but I lay it down on my own initiative. I have authority to lay it down, and I have authority to take it up again. This commandment I receive from my Father. And then just a little bit later in the Gospel of John, in John chapter 19, while we're at the cross itself, uh, we find in verse 30 of John chapter 19, therefore, when Jesus had received the sour wine, he said, it is finished. He bowed his head and gave up his spirit. So one, one of the things we see running through these passages is that Jesus was in full control the whole time. Uh, when time was right, he gave it up. He became the willing sacrifice that was necessary to redeem us from our sins. Yeah, one of the, at least... 
to me, one of the most powerful contrasts in this hymn is the end of verse three and then the end of verse four. And unless you're looking at it on the written page, maybe it's easy to overlook. But after spending three verses of this hymn, you know, this is one of the more vivid hymns that we sing revolving around what Jesus went through on the cross. And it all wraps up with then the sinful work of man was done. And of course, if if that's the end of the gospel story, uh, if that's the end of this hymn, well, that's not a very optimistic, hope-filled note on which to end, right? But if you keep singing, uh, the fourth verse ends with salvation's wondrous plan was done. So on one hand, you've got the sinful work of man. On the other hand, it's salvation's wondrous plan. That reminds me of the prayer of the apostles in Acts chapter 4, as they have experienced, at least in the book of Acts, the, the first significant pushback to speaking in the name of Jesus. And they've gathered together to pray, to seek comfort and encouragement from the Lord. We read that they prayed in Acts 4.27, for truly in this city there were gathered together against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed, both Herod and Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles and the peoples of Israel. That goes back to the question that you raised earlier, Roger, who killed Jesus? Well, you know, we've got a, a couple of people specifically mentioned by name, but I love how this whole idea is phrased. They were gathered together against. Just because there's a crowd of adversaries gathered against me doesn't necessarily mean they're in control, right? Or or they're going to come out on top. And so they acknowledge there were Jews, there were Gentiles gathered against the Lord's anointed one, but I love the perspective of Acts 4.28. They pray these people had gathered together to do whatever your hand and your plan had predestined to take place. Yes, in verse 3 of our hymn, the sinful work of man, mankind did its worst against Jesus, the Son of God. But even in the darkest, uh, most destructive actions of man, God was working his plan of salvation. What a powerful thing to sing. Well, uh, let me ask you this, Jason, because, you know, the, the hymn and, and also the passage this is based upon talks about just numerous angels, yeah. 10,000 or legions of angels. Uh, would have taken that many angels? <laughs> I mean, well, what, what do we know about the strength of angels? Uh, yeah, so it sounds impressive all on its own. In fact, what Jesus says is a much bigger number than 10,000, right? Back in Matthew chapter 26 and verse 53 is where we have this statement. Don't you know I could call more than 12 legions of angels? Now, people then would have known what he was talking about. It might be a little foreign to us. A legion was 6,000 soldiers, 
12 legions would be 72,000 angels. Okay, so the hymn, 10,000, that sounds uh, like quite the significant number. It's even more than that. But when we remember, for instance, way back in the days of Elisha, that one angel killed 185,000 Assyrians? No, uh, we wouldn't need 72,000 angels. Uh, one angel could have cleared Jerusalem if he so chose or was sent by God. And so it is this incredible potential. It is, you know, every once in a while, meekness is described as strength under control. There is probably no better example in human history of strength under control than Jesus being able to call 72,000 and not doing that. So, Roger, you, you already hinted at it, but let's make it as explicit as we can. Why did Jesus exhibit such strength under control? Well, you know, the answer obviously is because he came for this purpose. He came for this mission. And, and I think of all times, all the emotions, all the pain that was against him at this moment. And if he ever had a weakness, it would have been at that moment. I mean, the, the desperation for life is the most fragile thing. And at the last moment, he could have said, bring him. And, but he didn't. Because he realized this is why he was sent. This is the purpose. He wanted to reconcile man to God, and it took a pure, perfect sacrifice. He was the only hope we had. And had he not done that, we would have been in trouble. And so so that's why he did not call the angels. Uh, they were at his disposal, but he understood that this had to be. This was the only way it could be, and this is why he did that. Yeah, it makes me think of another statement in the Garden of Gethsemane when all of these Roman soldiers are guided by Judas to the garden where Jesus is praying, and he asks in verse 53, or he says, when I was with you day after day in the temple, you did not lay your hands on me, but this is your hour and the power of darkness. Now that sounds perhaps alarming on the surface, but you know, if I, uh, if I tell my kids as they're growing up, okay, uh, you know, maybe it's some, we're, we're engaged in something that I don't particularly find enjoyable, but I tell them, okay, you have one hour. And then we're going to move on. <laughs> you know, everybody understands what uh, that is communicating. We can endure just about anything, you know, for one hour if there's the promise of moving on. How powerful that the Son of God says, I'm giving darkness an hour. And we understand he's not literally talking about 60 minutes, but in the grand scheme of things, Okay, darkness has its hour to do its worst, and God himself is going to endure the worst that darkness can unleash. But once that figurative hour is done, 
the Son of God is going to be triumphant. And, and what I think is so interesting about this hymn, not only did Jesus know this, I mean, he was the one who said this, I could have called uh, the legion, 12 legions of angels. But while he's on the cross, one of the abuse spoken to him is, save yourself, come down from the cross. Yeah. And one by one, those nails could have popped out. And he could have hopped down and said, here I am. And you would have seen that crowd running and screaming the other direction. But he didn't do that. Now, let's ask this question. What would our world look like today had Jesus called 10,000 angels? Yeah, well, from a physical point of view, the world might not even be here anymore, right? Had had that been the end of all things. But at least for me, what really stands out is the significance of this very last line in the course. He did this for you and me. So that draws, hopefully, our attention to the fact Jesus has to die as a sacrifice for our sins. Uh, that does not sneak up on us at the very end of his story. That's the very beginning of John's gospel. John chapter 1, verse 29, John the Baptist points at Jesus from Nazareth and says, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Why does Jesus stay on the cross? What what sort of state would this world be in? Well, the planet could have been destroyed, right? But if we want to speak in really personal terms, okay, he could have come down. He could have immediately been lauded as the greatest king that the world had ever seen, right? I mean, he 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 could have... At that point, that point, you know, every once in a while you hear this phrase, uh, the world is your oyster. Well, that's, that's, that's kind of it, right? Perhaps that's, uh, the heart behind one of Satan's early temptations of Jesus. Fall down, worship me. I'll give you all the kingdoms of the earth. But what would have been missing is atonement, the sacrifice necessary for my sins and for your sins. And so this is a sober hymn. As we said, it, it uses some, uh, some stark language to describe what he endured. But if I don't realize he did this for me, he stayed on the cross for me. I'm missing such a significant part of the yeah, story. He, he did this by choice, his choice. And and not not only would we not have reconciliation with God, I mean, that, that division because of our sin, our, our prayers really wouldn't be heard by God. That's why we pray in Jesus' name. He is our mediator because he died for our sins. Uh, every trip to the cemetery would be the end. I mean, there, there is no hope. There's no heaven. There, there's, there's no moral goodness. Uh, all, you know, all, all the things that, you know, we can look at this world and see all the negatives in there, but there's still a lot of positives. There's a lot of light shining from disciples today. And without Jesus dying, there would be no disciples today. That, that, that would all gone away. And so the curtain would have come down and we would be on our own and we would be hopeless and helpless. And that, that's a stark reality. And that's exactly what Satan wanted to happen 
but Jesus wouldn't do that. And so 10,000 angels, powerful, powerful hymn, powerful reminder of how much Jesus loves us because he chose, he decided to stay on there when he could have come off. Yeah. Stay tuned. In just a moment, we're going to sing a congregational recording of the singing of this hymn. But Roger, thanks for joining me today. Thanks to all of you for listening to the Heaven Bound podcast. We hope it's helped you set your mind on things above and given you a little more fuel for the journey. Always remember, when you're walking with this Jesus, you're heaven bound and the best is yet to come.